Well, it's Palm Sunday. Are you glad you're here today? Good. Hey, that's great. Looking forward to a huge Easter next Sunday. So, wow, that came fast. So, hope you're in, uh, planning on, on being with us again. We have a service. Friday night is a communion service, but then our four Easter services are Saturday night and our normal three Sundays, th- Sunday mornings. Man, I'm messing that up, aren't I? The normal three services we have on Sunday morning. All right, so we got that, and we're, we are excited about that and ready to roll. Uh, just quick update, please be praying with us about Tiffin. We are working hard to, to figure out a place. It looks like because of the size of the group that we may be starting with, that puts a little more pressure on finding the right place. So please be praying about that. Uh, a week and a half ago, I did have the opportunity to meet with some uh, pastors, uh, Bible-believing pastors there in Tiffin. We had a great meeting and, and kind of talked about what we were doing. And So good stuff. Please keep that in your prayers and be here next Sunday. Palm Sunday. Uh, This is the day we celebrate. We're back in history 2,000 years ago at the end of his three-year public ministry. Jesus rides in to Jerusalem, actually on a colt of a donkey. And he comes in, and people are shouting. There's huge celebration. Hosanna. Here comes the king. I mean, they are pumped. They've known about his miracles. He comes in, and they're recognizing him as the Messiah, as the King, and there's all this excitement. I mean, it builds. People, remember, are are throwing off their coats and laying in in the road in front of Jesus, and they're cutting palm branches, putting those, waving them, hence the name Palm Sunday, comes in in major celebration and fanfare, but just a few days later, we know that many of that same crowd apparently has turned on Jesus And there's a crowd of people in Jerusalem shouting, crucify him, crucify him. All because that Jesus was in conflict with the religious leaders. This morning, what I want us to do as we're continuing in public enemy is that we'd go back to one of the first conflicts that Jesus ever had with the religious leaders, which would be three years before Palm Sunday, as Jesus begins his public ministry. The first thing he does is he speaks in his hometown, Nazareth, and, and he says some things that angers the people there. And, and basically, he's talking about that salvation was going to go out from the Jewish people to other people. and They didn't like that. But then there, the event that we're going to talk about today began really this conflict with religious leaders that led to him eventually being crucified as a public enemy. And where I want to start is Luke chapter 5. And basically, as, as we look at this, if you'll grab a Bible or turn on your device or tune in to our, our screens here, um, Jesus, the religious leaders caught that Jesus was bringing a new kingdom and he led it with unlimited authority, unrestricted access, and an urgent assignment. And they didn't like any of that, but I want us to walk through that. Beginning in Luke chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse, uh, with verse 12. Unlimited authority, and specifically, first of all, authority over sickness and uncleanness. Here, here's how it goes, beginning in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, behold, uh, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. We can stop right there because already some interesting things 
have happened that we might not catch in our day and age, but they would have caught that would have been unusual in the first century. And that is that this all happens in a city. And because this happens in a city, it means that the leper, the guy who's coming to Jesus, he's actually breaking the law because he had leprosy, not just a touch of leprosy. Luke says he's covered in leprosy. And for him to come into the city, he was supposed to be on the outskirts. He wasn't allowed to do that. And we can almost imagine how that happens. I mean, this guy, he's a leper. He knows that Jesus is in the area. Uh, He's starting to draw a crowd. He's on the outside of the city kind of watching or the village or whatever it was, sort of watching Jesus' movements as best he can. But then he decides he's going to go for broke and risk everything because he believes that Jesus can give him a new life. And so he sees an opening, he sprints into the town, right up to Jesus, throws himself on his face, and then he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can forgive me. Of course, when this happens, as he sprints in, before anybody can stop him and throws himself down before Jesus, everybody with Jesus, they're recoiling in horror, contagious, contagious. He's supposed to be separate and away from everybody, and they're all backing off. And he says, Lord, if you're willing... You can make me clean. If his actions didn't show faith in Christ, his words surely did. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. While everybody else is reacting to this, and before they could do anything, before they could stop him, they're all just shocked and backing off. Jesus reaches out and touches him. Didn't have to touch him. The leper, he knew Jesus didn't. He said, if you're just willing, if you just want to, you could make me clean. But he touches him and he says, I am willing. Be clean. Verse 13, and he stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. After this event, Mark tells us that it's hard for for Jesus to go into any city after this. That there are so many people wanting to get close to Jesus that, that he pretty much stayed on the outside of towns, in the hills and in the prairies, and people would come to him uh, that way because going in town would be problematic. But eventually, Jesus quietly makes his way back to Peter's hometown, Capernaum, which is in Galilee, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, on the shore there. And let's pick it up in, in verse 17. One day he was teaching... And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with the stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So picture this. Jesus goes to Capernaum, Peter's hometown. He's in Peter's house. And he did that quietly, but eventually the word gets out. And so now people are crowding around the house. And they're coming from nearby villages, the surrounding, even Jerusalem. Everybody's coming to see Jesus. And the place is packed. In this town, among these people are some friends, a group of friends, and they decide they would like to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus because they know Jesus could heal him. 
But, of course, as they try to do that, they have to carry him, and they're carrying him, and they realize there's no way through. I mean, here's this little house. It's packed to the walls, but not only that, every window, every doorway, just crowds of people packed in trying to see what Jesus is saying, what's going on. And there's no way they're getting through carrying this guy. But then they spot something that's common in in houses of the day in the first century. It's an exterior stairway leading up to a flat roof on top of the the building. People would go up there to pray or or dry their clothes or whatever. And so they head up there. They hoist, push, grunt their way up with their friend to get to the ceiling, the, the roof of this house. And then they start moving the tiles and digging through the mud and sticks that they used back there for the beams and then the cross pieces. They dig through all that, and they're doing everything they can, tearing up Peter's house in order to get this guy to Jesus. Could you imagine being on the inside of the house? I mean, I mean, if you're lucky enough to be in there, you're packed against the wall, you're straining to hear everything Jesus says, and there's tension in the room because these religious leaders have come, and there's, there's a tension because they don't accept Jesus' authority. And so conflict is in the air, and you're trying to hear every little word that's going on, but while you're doing that, all of a sudden, there's some debris and some dirt falling down from the ceiling. You know, and you're looking up there, and it's a distraction, and everybody starts looking, and all this stuff is, is kind of falling down, falling down, and then eventually some guy sticks his head through the ceiling and kind of sheepishly looks around. Oh, here we are. You know, through the cloud of dust, there's this guy, and then about the time, well, he, he, maybe he just wants to hear, you think things are, are going to get back to normal, so you refocus your attention on Jesus, and about that time, the hole gets enlarged, even more debris, and then they start lowering a guy down on a stretcher, a pallet. Have you ever seen that? Guys trying to lower another guy? You know, not professional like what the hell. You know, he's, he's probably like, you know, whoa, you know, he's coming down and everybody's looking. And, and then they land this guy right in front of Jesus. Boom. And everybody's going, whoa. And there he is. And then Jesus, he speaks to the man. Um, and he shows that not only does he have authority over sickness and uncleanness, but he shows everybody has the authority, unlimited authority, even over sin. Verse 20, picking it up there, seeing their faith, Jesus, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and, and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You see, they, they lower their buddy down. They're all peering through the hole. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Just, just like that, seeing their faith. And, and we get the reaction from the religious leaders and Pharisees because Jesus says, you're, he doesn't say you're healed. He says your f- sins are forgiven. Whoa, time out. Because they understand that we as human beings, we're capable of forgiving somebody's sin against us. If somebody's wronged us, we can forgive them. And as a matter of fact, if you're a Christian, a follower of Christ, Jesus tells us that we very much should be doing this. We should forgive people who have wronged us. But this guy doesn't know. I mean, Jesus, probably the first time Jesus ever seen this person. 
And Jesus says, your sins. And everybody gets, this guy hasn't done anything to Jesus. He's saying their sins because they were all wrapped up in, hey, this guy's paralyzed. He must be a really bad dude because God would do that to him. You know? And so not only was he just a regular sinner like all of us, they would say, this guy's even a bigger sinner probably. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's blasphemy. That, that's, there's really only two choices here. Either Jesus is committing blasphemy, and that's where we belittle God. And by the way, equating ourselves with God would be belittling God. Or Jesus is God is the only other explanation. So that's what's happening. So they have this immediate negative reaction from the Pharisees, verse 22. But Jesus, aware of the reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Then he says, which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? He's saying, which is easier, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? And really, the answer to this is, it's actually easier to say your, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because nobody can verify that. We, anybody can say, hey, that you can act like God and say your sins are forgiven. But people actually can't forgive people for their sins against God. But if you did that and say that happened, who knows? I mean, you can't prove it. But if you say get up and walk to a paralyzed man, you're validated on the spot. That's the harder thing to do. So there's logic behind the question that Jesus pitches back to the leaders. And Jesus here does both, verse 24. But, Jesus says, but, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled, filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things today. Or, or in the Greek, paradoxical things, amazing things today we have seen. Jesus is saying, hey, get up, grab your stuff, and head out. And you can just imagine, this guy's grabbing his stuff, Fighting, shouldering his way through the crowd. In the meantime, his buddies come down off the roof, and they're like high-fiving and dancing all the way home. I mean, can you imagine? They're joyful, right? They are pumped. It worked. Just what they wanted to do. They were bold. They did what, you know, maybe a lot of people say they shouldn't have done, but they, had, they did it. Jesus honored that. And, and in this conflict, with this, these first conflicts that we see with the religious leaders, the first conflict here in Luke. This is the whole deal. This is the whole point. This is the crux of the conflict that will eventually come to a culmination in the crucifixion of Jesus. Because Jesus isn't coming saying he's just the Messiah, just the king of the Jews. Jesus is saying he's God in the flesh. And that's why the religious leaders eventually kill him a few days after Palm Sunday. But Jesus is saying something else. Not only does he come with ushering in this new kingdom with unlimited authority 
that the religious leaders had issues with, but also he comes with an unrestricted access, which the religious leaders had a problem with that too. Jesus comes with this new kingdom, and it's unrestricted access to the one in authority. It's unrestricted access to God. And, and where this came into um, conflict with the religious leaders is that the religious leaders were always worried about contamination, physical contamination, but also spiritual contamination. So this whole contact thing, this unrestricted access was problematic for them. And we kind of understand the physical contamination part. I mean, throughout history, right, we understand with, when the infected come in contact with the uninfected, many times they both end up infected. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. And actually, in every religion or even every system, when the clean comes in contact with the unclean, then they both end up unclean. I mean, we, we all kind of get that. It's only really through Jesus, this new thing with new authority, that when the clean touches the unclean, all of a sudden now they're both clean. Never happened before. But it's not just the physical contamination. The Jewish people prohibited access because of moral contamination. And I know that that sounds weird to us, but let's follow this along. Look, look at verse 27. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth, and he said, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow Jesus. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And then he said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. So the religious leaders have an issue, not just physical contamination, but moral contamination. And before we jump all over them, I'm just going to say they have a point. And the point is this. Israel had a whole bunch of strange Jewish laws in the Old Testament that you can read in places like Leviticus. And, and if you ever, anybody get bogged down in Leviticus, you know, you're reading through, and you're like, what is all this stuff? And all that stuff was really designed to keep Israel a separate nation, separate from all the cultures around them. They didn't eat this. They didn't eat that. They did this. They did that. And also to teach him the whole sacrificial system, how serious sin was. But basically, he kept them separate. And, and so they were separate was being very important to keep. And that was an amazing thing, by the way, because for thousands of years, the Jewish people remained separate. And, and they didn't just go away like so many cultures did by, by just combining with other cultures. They remained separate. So it worked. And part of that now is a tradition from the Jewish people in the first century where they would not eat with unbelievers, non-Jewish people, because they thought that they would spiritually contaminate them. And here's their point that's kind of right. To eat with people is a deeper level of fellowship or a deeper, deeper level of connection. Uh, we see this all the time, for example, even in the business world, right? You'll have meetings, and then sometimes you'll have lunch meetings. And if you've ever noticed this in the business world, usually lunch meetings, not that much stuff gets done. You get more done if you just stayed in the office. 
but you go out to lunch. Why? Because it's more than just getting stuff done. It's building a relationship. And so you grow closer together over a meal. And just like that dynamic happens today, happened in the first century. And so basically, to recline at the table, especially back then, especially in the Jewish mind, to eat with somebody, to invite them into a home and eat together, that was close connection, close fellowship. That was an intimate way of, of knowing somebody better through a meal. And so they're, they're pointing out, hey, this is problematic. If you have God's people hanging out with these people, you know, all of a sudden they can influence God's people and pretty soon God's people aren't being God's people anymore, kind of a deal. And, and, and we get that. As a matter of fact, a lot of people, maybe in this room, especially if you're older, you might have been a part of a church, even a Bible-believing church, that believed in something that they would call separation. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Just kind of wave at me. Or you've heard of a church. And separation meant that they, the church would say, hey, as believers, we shouldn't be hanging around with non-believers. So we should be separate for them. And there, there's a biblical principle with that. And so, but they would kind of hammer that. There's actually kind of, if you want to get more fringy than that, there's also churches that believed in second, secondary separation, which meant that if you're a Christian, you can't even hang around with other Christians if they hang around with it. Yeah, but anyway, we, we don't even go there because none of you remember that. But anyway, so this separation. And there is a biblical principle on separation, and that is this. If we're going to hang around with unbelievers, we need to, it, we need to make sure that we're the influencers, and rather than us being influenced by them. So, and that's what Jesus modeled for us. He didn't do the separation thing, but he was right there being the influencer, keeping his righteous, sinless life, even while he was mingling with, with maybe the not godly crowd. And, and really, all systems are kind of based on this. Not just religions where, hey, we're the good people and they're the bad people and we draw the line and we don't want to mix too much. But non-religious people do this too. They just draw the line for different reasons. People do it politically. Well, I'm a this and, and they're bad people because they're for that, so we draw the, I don't want to hang around with them because we believe this way. And both, you know, if it's Democrats or Republicans or what, you know, everybody views other people. It's, everybody does this. It's just a human thing that we tend to, we think we're right in some area, and we sort of draw a line, and we call those people wrong, and then we don't want to hang around with them because we don't want to be wrong like they are. So we kind of get what their point, but here's the deal. Jesus comes for the defiled. I mean, Jesus says, no, erase the line because I'm not going to be influenced. I'm going to be the influencer. And Jesus says, anyone, anywhere, no matter how bad you are, no matter how stained you feel, no, no matter how guilty you feel or how ashamed you feel, and you actually are guilty, he's saying, no matter what, I invite you into relationship and I can make you instantly clean no matter who you are, no matter where you're from. And we totally get that today. And that leads us really to the last truth, that Jesus comes with this Unlimited authority, unrestricted access to God. This is what Jesus brings to us. And then also an urgent assignment that we have a mission, we have a purpose, we have a job to do. And we're going to see that. As a matter of fact, Jesus calls us to follow. Just like 
Levi or Matthew, same guy, just like Matthew, Jesus calls us to follow. And what did Levi do? He left everything and he followed God. He followed Jesus. But first, in order for you to do that, you have to understand that you're not righteous. That you're a sinner, like all of us except for Jesus are. As a matter of fact, I one time heard a friend here at church telling me that they had talked to somebody that they knew who had come to our church a couple times. It's been a few months ago. And, and then they got in a conversation about partying and you know doing the bar scene and all that. And, and so they were in this conversation, and this person, whom I don't know, said, well, it's just like Jesus in the Bible. I mean, he was always hanging around the sinners and, and the, you know, the bad people and the prostitutes and all that. So, hey, that, that means, that teaches me that I can just go live my life any way I want and just have a good time and just live, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't care. That is not what's going on here. Jesus is hanging around anyway. He's hanging around the, the rough crowd, the bad crowd. Exactly. But Jesus is the influencer. He's doing that. As he lives a perfectly righteous, sinless life. He's like a beacon of righteousness. But the sinning people, the people on the other side of the line, they felt comfortable around him. They were flocking to him because he was telling them the truth. He cared for them. But they totally understood that Jesus was different. No doubt about that. And Jesus is saying... Remember, because what, what they say, I've not come, I've not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So he's there with all the sinners, like all of us, but he's calling them to repentance. What's repentance? Again, we've been talking about it a little bit. It's a change of mind that leads to us redirecting our life to follow God. So we were thinking this way, but now we change our mind about Jesus, who he is, as he's actually an authority over our life. He's our king, our rightful king. And so we reorient our life to follow Jesus, to do life his way, to stop just pursuing for our own pleasure and pursue life with God. So Levi got that. He not only received that call or, or took God up on it and fought, left everything to follow Jesus, he understood the mission, that he had an assignment, that once we come to God, that we then want to point others to God. So he leaves everything, and then what does he do? And he's a tax collector. He's not, uh, Zacchaeus was like a chief tax collector, so he's not on Zacchaeus' level, but he's a tax collector. It's a, it's a lucrative job. But it's also a job that makes you the enemy of all the Jewish people. Because you're collecting taxes for the occupying Roman power, and so they see you as a traitor, a cheat, because you can kind of add on whatever percentages you want, as long as you could collect kind of a deal. And so it was just a bad deal. Everybody hated tax collectors. And, but before he leaves everything, he leaves this job to follow Jesus. He throws a big party. And he brings in all of his tax-collecting buddies. And, and these are the people who weren't necessarily, um, you know, they probably had money, but they weren't the most respected people around. And he calls them, throws a party, they all come in. And why does he do that? 
because he invites Jesus and he does it. So they'll rub shoulders with Jesus, his Savior. So he's following Jesus now and he totally gets, hey, I want all my buddies to follow Jesus. I want all my friends to know Jesus. And so at personal expense, throws a party, brings them in just so they'll interact like that. Just so people will rub shoulders, get to know Jesus, maybe respond to Jesus. And he shares Jesus' heart for reaching the lost. Because, by the way, all of us in this room have been lost. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We've all messed up. But God's made a way for us, and it's through Christ and Christ alone. And trying to influence people and point them to God, that's why we exist here at Grace. Two reasons, to introduce people to Jesus and then to help people grow in their faith. That's why we do everything we do. Anything you see around here, this building, that's why. The seats we put in here, that's why. Why people mow the lawns, that's why. Why people greet at the doors, that we are trying to influence people, get them in. Why do we do upward? Why do we put so much into children's ministry? All this is so that people will come in and hear the word, and the word then will introduce them to Jesus. The word will lead them to a saving knowledge of Christ. It's why we do everything. Yard signs. I mean, everything we do. Facebook, anything we do, that's why we do it. It all just comes down to that. We want to impact people by pointing them to Jesus. And then once they become followers, we want to help them to grow in their faith. That's it. That's everything. You should, anything you point at around here, it's, it's, we're trying to do that. It's why we use the music that we use, to try to connect with people who don't know Jesus and, and make it make sense to them. It's why I preach in the language that I preach in without using a lot of Greek words. Why? So when people come in, they get it. It's everything. And the question is, two questions. First of all, are, are you a believer? Have you come to repentance? Have you become a follower like Matthew or Levi did. And then secondly, if you are a follower of Christ, are you engaged in the mission? Do you understand that you have an assignment, an urgent assignment? It's urgent because God has not guaranteed any of us how much time we have. And so our friends and our loved ones or the people that we know in our community that don't know Christ, it's only their lifetime that they have a chance to come to Christ. We don't know when their lifetime is going to end, so we need to get urgent about God's mission. That's why Jesus was urgent about his mission. And he's passed that torch to us in the Great Commission. So that's the question. How about you? Where are you at? Have you followed him? And then have you taken up his assignment to help others come to know him? And so as we wrap up today, that, that's what I want to leave you with. And, and if you're sitting here and saying, well, you know, I kind of always believed in Jesus, so I'm a follower, and I'm going to say, no, nope, that's not it. Because the Bible tells us we all start out estranged from God, and it's only when we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us and who we are, sinners, that we can come into a relationship with God. So you need to make a decision to do that, a thinking decision. And if you have questions about that, I'll be in room one, which is this corner right here, to answer any questions that you have about that. Maybe it's just one question, maybe it's 20 questions, or if you just want to talk to somebody, we're here for you. We, we also have some literature if you don't want to talk and just want to look at something. Just come in, grab something, say, hey, I can't talk. Do you have anything for me? We'll give you something.
But if you're a believer, then the question is, are you engaged in his mission? Have you followed your Savior, your King's marching orders? Have you made a difference? And this is one of the best weeks to do that because we're leading up to Easter. Easter is one of those one or two times a year where even people who normally don't go to church and, and normally don't do the God thing at all, although they might not think they're estranged from God, but that's the one time that they're open to coming to church and hearing about God is Easter because they know, oh, I don't want to spend another Easter where I feel like the whole world's at church and I'm in my pajamas on Facebook, you know, wondering where everybody's at. Are you involved? Will you commit to invite someone to church or to share the gospel with somebody or, or maybe three people this week? What will you commit to do to accomplish what God has called you to do this week. No better time. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. And then Tim's going to come out and he's going to lead us in a song. And it's Hosanna. This song is, is the same thing that the crowds were saying when Jesus came in as king riding into Jerusalem one Sunday morning. But before we sing, let's pray together. Father... Uh, we thank you for the day, and Lord, we, we pray because we know we're all sinners, we're all in the same boat, we've all missed your mark, and you love us anyway, and you've made a way for us to be forgiven, but it was costly, it was, it was tough, it was allowing your son to voluntarily give his life, be tortured to death in order to pay for our sins, and having done that, it, we can just receive that free gift of salvation simply through faith, but we have to have faith. We have to trust Jesus in order to get that gift. And God, we thank you for that. And if anybody here, Lord, doesn't understand that, we pray that you give them the confidence or the courage or to find out more. Come and talk in room one or to grab something to read or, or something to move them closer to you. We pray that you draw them to yourself. And Father, for the rest of us, those of us who are believers, who are in the same spot, but that's behind us now. We've already come to you. We already have become believers. Lord, help us to get on mission. Help us to get on assignment. It's urgent. Lord, use us to make an impact in the world around us. You amazingly allow us to make an impact for eternity. That even makes sense. That is part of your plan. And God, we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.